0: Welcome back to Ours Politica. So today I'm going to talk about chapter two of the case for Christian nationalism. I apologize again for not diligently doing this and uh, continuing through all these. I've been, I put it off a little bit. I need to get back going on and I need to put produce more content. So I apologize for that, uh, but let's just kind of get into it as soon as possible because I don't, I don't do the opening banter. I can't stand that podcast, so. All right, so my previous two, uh, I think I did two previous ones on this book. Uh, I think I'm. T- this is the defense of Christian nationalism. The first one was on the introduction where I talked about method. Uh, f- second second episode covered chapter one, and that was on the prelapsarian state. I went into detail and tried to defend that as best I could. It was, that says proven controversial, as in almost every chapter except the civil law chapter. That poor chapter hasn't got any attention. Uh, even though it's, I think, um, one of the one of the best. But anyway, um, let's look at this uh, chapter two. So, if you remember from chapter one, chapter one, I start off with prelapsarian man, or man in the state of integrity, more more like uh, probably better to look at that because pre prelapsarian assumes that there would be a postlapsarian, you know. But what I'm I'm approaching, I approach that chapter as if as if, uh, Adam had not fallen. So to try to establish what would be fundamentally natural to Adam. Okay. What would be good? What, what, what's his good? How would, uh, how would he proceed in his life and his progeny? How would they fill and multiply on the earth and how would they subdue it, exercise dominion and what that all means? And so I come to the conclusion that there would be a multiplicity of nations, uh, and that's based upon the nature of man. Um, uh, but then, uh, and what am I doing here? So like, any, in any political theory, you're going to talk about the nature of man as the sort of starting point to construct your civil society. Because if you're doing human civil, you know, civil organizations, civil arrangements, civil society, you need to kind of understand what sort of being man is. Not just that he's rational, but also what sort of, you know, what sort of animal is he? Uh, there's there's bees who are like maximally collective, or honey, you know, uh, the, the honey bees, and then there are the uh, uh, bears that are solitary, or uh, sometimes you can compare the wood bee versus the uh, or the carpenter bee versus the um, honey bee. How they're very different, though they're both bees, very different in their social organization, right? So, what sort of animal or what sort of being is man? And that's what I covered uh, in that chapter so that's vitally important uh, but at the same time there's something more to man so of course if we had, is if we had not fallen then we could have done theory just by chapter 1 but uh chapter 2 has to deal with the fact that we are fallen creatures okay so as fallen creatures how does that change um in a sense our being in the world or our being or whatever how does that how does that change so obviously there was a change and it was a very significant change now i already set up this chapter from the chapter from the first chapter where i described man's natural constitution which that there's you can you can you can talk about as like two sets of gifts one being concerned more more of the earthly life you know like the skills associated with that um also like our our uh human um uh, association and how we would govern ourselves and be in the world together as as a kind of a co- collective entity um, But also higher parts of us as well that would that would orient us to, to God to heavenly life um, To something in, in a sense beyond the state of integrity to to orient us to the state of glory So I argued in chapter one the state of glory was always promised to Adam upon his meeting the conditions God set forth um, so this is important when we talk about the state of sin. And uh, again, I discuss, uh, I, I cite many different people um, within the Reformed tradition to support my contention here. Calvin, Vermeely, Jonathan Ed- Edwards, Turretin, Bavinck, uh, Elthusius, Samuel Willard. Um, so I just keep going on down down. down. The, uh, all those guys and, and some others, some confessions or Sinus. Charles Hodge. The argument is that what man principally lost at the fall was actually that that uh, that orientation to the highest good that is to to God, to his heavenly kingdom. And so it really concerned more spiritual things. I should say that that's the principle of, that's what was lost. So Calvin will talk about, that uh, the, the supernatural he'll, he'll call them supernatural, which later on there's some development in reform theology. But let's just stick with that. That those were removed, and in in removing that, the natural things were not removed, um, but they were corrupted. So this is why Calvin can say something: the fact that that man still has this sort of instinct for society, he still has an instinct for for civil order. He still has an instinct, in a sense, for good and civil virtue because it's right in his face that these things are actually good for him. So he's not utterly separated from what is good. He's not utterly separated from the principles of what is good for man. Okay. He is separated from, uh, uh, largely from these higher things, from these, from knowledge of God and, you know, thoroughly. So, uh, and this is why you'll, you'll, you'll hear, I mean, not only is it, it's in Romans one, but reformed tradition That this idea that they're thrown, man is thrown upon the things of this world. So, lacking this kind of higher knowledge, this orientation to to God with acknowledgement and worshiping God, they kind of are thrown down to earthly things become and become corrupted and pagan and idolatrous um, in that way. Nevertheless, uh, there still is, as I said, a sense of um, what is good in earthly life. People still operate according to the principles of what is good in earthly life. So if I say principles. That, of course, that means directionally they can be wrong. So there's a sense in which marriage is right, but then it becomes polygamy. Okay. There's a there's um, th- th- there's a sense in which loving your fellow your neighbor is good, but that can that can easily then become well, who's my neighbor? Is is my neighbor hundred? Thousand miles away, can I take over uh, the the nation next to me? Can I conquer this and that? So there still is a sense of like, hey, murder is bad, stealing is bad, but it becomes twisted in different ways. Nevertheless, again, the uh the the principle is still operative. And again, I'm not saying anything new when I say this. And I what's actually what's kind of frustrating, and I've said this before. Is that when people take objection to this in their reviews, they don't deal with the fact that I'm not saying anything new. I'm saying precisely what practically everyone said until until essentially knowledge of this was lost. Uh, I'll just take Bovink. Ba- I mean, if, um, it's, it's, it's ironic how Bovink actually confirms so much of what the Bavinkian scholars question about my view. So here he says, since after the fall, people have remained human and can, and continue to share in the blessings of God's common grace. They can inwardly possess many virtues and outwardly do many good deeds that viewed through human eyes and measured by human standards are greatly to be appreciated and of great value for human life. Um, But he continues, uh, but this is not to say that they are good in the eyes of God and correspond to the full spiritual sense of his holy law. So, Bavinck says that yeah, they, they still are human and yet and and also there's still God's sort of common grace operating and So even inwardly they have these these virtues and outwardly uh, many uh, many good deeds. So Samuel Willard who Was a New England Puritan. He wasn't a you know weakling. Let me put it that way uh, in theology, he wasn't uh, sliding into um heterodoxy he said there's a great deal which a man may do in morality by the improvement of his natural powers with the common assist- assistance of the spirit of god we are here warily to distinguish between the moral powers which belong to the nature of man and the moral image which are connatural to him in a state of integrity the moral image usually typically like the image of god that's considered something that, like the principal part of it is was those higher gifts that were lost so they'll talk about the idea of the image having been withdrawn by which they really mean that the higher the principal part of it and so there still is a retaining of the image but it's like very corrupted Um, Calvin will say in his institutes all men have impressions of civil order and honesty He says they they comprehend the principles of civil law And there is universal agreement in regard to such subjects both among nations and individuals Concerning their ideas of equity and he says they agree in substance Uh, Calvin continues common one of his commentaries. He says consent of all nations on principles of equity and justice is quote the nature the voice of nature Okay, and you see this other, uh, you see Turretin uses consent of the nations, uh, meaning that all these nations hold this same thing, which points to there being a natural law, and also they use that to say there is a natural law, because if there is universal agreement among kind of disparate nations concerning that murder is wrong, theft is wrong, you know, you ought to have a good reputation, and lying is wrong, if you have this universal agreement, this indicates that they're operating out of some sort of natural uh, impulse or natural some some natural power. Okay, all right. So what, what's the point here uh, is that when we talk when the reform world nowadays talks about total depravity, we tend to actually push that depravity into areas that the reformers in the past did not extend it. So it was true that it was total in the sense that every part of man's being became corrupted. But it was not, our, our, uh, they were not corrupted in the same way. It does not mean that man is obliterated or utterly separated from what is good. They still have impulses, instincts that are good. They still have. Um, they still act according to the principles of natural law, though, of course, they misdirect it for their own their own purposes. But, uh, but the, the fact of the matter is depravity is is total, meaning every part of it, not utter depravity, as you've probably heard that before. So just continue, uh, Bob Inc. Um, all the essential compo- components existing today were present also before the fall. So he talks about things like parents and children, brothers and sisters, relatives, um Dominion of the earth. So the idea here is that there's there's actually continuity. Bavink is pointing out that that the life that we live, he says, uh, with all these things have undoubtedly been modified by sin and change in appearance, they nevertheless have their active principle and foundation creation in the ordinance of God and not in sin. So his point is that there's a lot of things in our world that that have been marred in appearance, and modified by sin, but in their substance, they're actually creational. All right. So the the fact that we have marriage, it's been marred by sin, but it's creational. The fact that we have children, the fact that we love our children, the fact that we prefer our children over other children, it is marred in some way by sin. Nevertheless, in substance, it's actually very good. So there's continuity between pre-fall and post-fall. Now, everyone kind of affirmed this for a long time until fairly recently. Uh, and it even goes to the point where so Charles Hodge says, The Bible recognizes the validity and rightness of all the constitutional principles and impulses of our nature. It therefore approves of parental and a filial affection, as, a plain for, uh, as is plain from this and other passages, of peculiar love for the people uh, of one's own people and country. Okay, so that's Charles Hodge, All right? So the, these we tend, in, in our world today, we tend to, in the evangelical world tend to highly distrust reason, um, our instincts, natural inclinations, and we need, in order to know that we can believe something, can do something, we need usually chapter and verse or some kind of biblical exposition. Okay, we can't, we're We're so distrustful of those other things. I, I don't think, I think that's probably more the way we talk about than actually act because if you ask someone, is it good for a mother to instinctively love her own child? Is that instinct good? I think most people would say yes. They might hesitate for a moment because they realize where I'm going to take that. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, that is, um, uh, I think, recognized as good. So I don't think we're entirely consistent in that regard. And I think we should be more consistent, which is to say, that we should be more willing to uh, treat ourselves as human beings, as God created us to as have instincts and natural impulses, and uh, and of course bring them under, just like just like Adam would have. Adam would have had impulses and inclinations. I'm not talking about sinful ones. I'm saying that those were those are part of our being to have these sort of desire to have des- to be a desirous. Uh, being is what we are from the beginning, but but Adam would have had utter control by reason and would have chosen rightly. Um, uh th- Those those this, there would have been com- perfect perfect coherence, is my point. Now in the in the state an age of sin, we can recognize that there's impulses, inclination, desires that are good in themselves, but now they ought to be ordered properly because we have uh, lustful, is the lust of our flesh. So we have to. By our by the Spirit, um, and our kind of restored self by by grace, we ought to bring those into in conformity and properly directed. Uh, so what what's the main so what's the main thing I was trying to get at here with this, for with regard to Christian nationalism, is to say that the the fact that we see nations in the world, different nations in itself is actually not a product of sin, it's actually a product of just human nature as constituted from the beginning. Now, we can say that this or that nation came about in terms of origin from sin, so let's say forcibly integrated, um, I don't know, conquered and then and then or or, or maybe moved someplace. I don't know. you, you can think about how different nations, it can come about in sinful ways. You can think about how one nation tries to conquer and dominate another. You can think of all sorts of things, but we can also start mentioning things as uh, um, uh, families. So family life can be corrupted as well, right? You can have polygamy. I mentioned earlier. You can have a, an abusive husband, just like in complement, uh, compliment- uh, um, like the relationship of husband and wife. You can have a domineering and un- unfaithful husband or, or spouse. And uh, and so that this doesn't the, the fact that these things can be abused does not actually prove that they're they're false, and certainly want we wouldn't want to follow that principle through in every every every, I mean you hear this in evangelicals well if 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 uh, we allow someone to do this or we give for example if we give the government the power to do this well they're going to use it against us, or they're going to abuse it. Well, then, that means that there's a lot of things that we should throw out if we're fear of um, of being abused. But that's an aside. But my point is that the the fact that we that humans came to organize themselves socially, civilly, whatever, uh, under nations, and that nations have been recognized throughout all of history, and they are in in a way spontaneously uh, created. I know we're gonna talk about Babel, but. The, the fact that they have been created or the fact that, that we have uh, organized ourselves around similar people in nations is something actually natural. And in defense of that, I would just say, what faculty did we lose at the fall that if we had that faculty, we would be like a single undifferentiated mono nation or something around the world? Why, why is it that it would seem, I mean, it would seem natural given our faculties that we would, if we spread across the world, we would have different cultural characteristics, different culinary tastes, different dances, different music, different language, different dialects, different names for different things that we encounter. What faculty would overcome that? What did we lose at the fall that would that would have ensured that none of that differentiation would have happened what what is it because that's essentially what you're saying you're saying when you say no there would have been sort of mono national culture around the whole world before the fall you're saying that man had something about him would lead to that right what was lost at the fall that results in a multiplicity of nations in the world okay what 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 was it? I mean, you can't just say, you can't just say sin because that's, that begs the question, what is it? And you think of the Tower Tower of Babel, everyone likes to bring this Tower of Babel. First of all, like James Jordan actually is on my side in this, which is maybe a little ironic. Um, He he says, he says that uh, God intended actually a sort of scattering of the nations from the beginning and the curse was not so much the scattering, um, but it was upon them seeking to unify or one or to essentially usurp God. Uh, so I, I also think that there there's a there's a, a fallacy at work here. The fact that you can identify the origin of different nations as an event of God does not change the fact that man would have ordinarily, as he spread around the world, created separations. I mean, the Tower of Babel, if it points to anything, it points to the fact that if you are, have one purpose and you have one language and you have a singular focus as a people, you can actually achieve great things. I use, you know, kind of bunny ear here, achieve great things, even though, of course, there, was, there were corrupt things. But it would the Tower of Babel demonstrated was that if you're going to be a sort of great nation, well, it would seem that you would need a lot of similarity uh, which is precisely my argument within the book, is that if you're going to have a a um, flourishing nation, then you're going to need significant uh, similarity. And why, why precisely why did these did um, Babel uh, become a kind of disordered mess because of diversity? Why did people separate have to separate in different groups because, Of diversity so it actually proves the principle behind my argument it proves the fact that dissimilarity requires naturally leads people to move away from one another and why would they do that in the interest of their good you need to be able to speak if if you uh, if if man requires cooperation with their fellow man in order to achieve anything of, of living well any measure of living well then certainly language which is a very particular thing you have to share that and so that's babel that's the babel and, and also again the origin of nations which by the way the nations that we have today those don't map on to the nations that that's that were scattered by god at, at from Bab, from the tower of babel so there are other nations created along the way it's not as if there was then oh man and their corruption is now going to move back into one no, there was the further multiplicity and the and the um, end and the rise of other nations, and so it, it doesn't it doesn't actually deal with the the argument as presented, and it just shows that someone took it. Someone usually when they bring up that that argument, they haven't dealt with my actual arguments themselves. They they just think oh he believes there's different nations that are natural, but they came from Tower of Babel, which again doesn't deal with the argument. It's also a sort of genetic fallacy where it says well, the origin of these is from God's act, and so therefore it's not natural to man. That actually does not follow. All right, keep going on from there. Um, but I, I guess the bottom line there is that the fall of man does not eradicate, or I, I should say that the way the world is structured today is marred in appearance by sin. But much of what we see, or, or much of, well, we, uh, the much must uh, uh, the substance of what we see is actually very human, natural to man, just like we see marriage spread across the world. It's natural, but it's been corrupted. okay. So all right, I won't beat up on that. Uh, the next section augmentation of institutions. Okay, so I argue in the previous chapter that civil government is natural. Uh, there would, natural meaning, it would arise just because of the need for resolving collective action problems. So do I drive on this side of the road or that side of the road? So that basically you need some rulemaking authority to say do this and don't do that. That doesn't mean like people think that means, that really could mean nothing but like a council comes together and makes decisions and then promulgates it. Maybe once a year or maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe once every five years or maybe once and never again. But nevertheless, once you have some legitimate body or person saying, this is what we are going to do, and they establish the rule, uh, they enact it, and they promulgate it, that's government. Even if there's no one sitting in the halls of the legislature, even if there's no one in some sort of magisterial building, if your people got together and said, we're going to do this, and that's the rule, that's civil government. So it doesn't have to be more than that. Okay, that's that's from last time, but... Augmentation of institutions. So, I argue that civil government, on a creation post-fall, it's augmented. Augmented means that, like something's been boosted or added to it. Like a military unit would have, like an infantry unit might have, be augmented by engineer assets so they can uh, do demolition. Okay, so they'll be augmented so they can complete their the original mission of the institute. Uh, the infantry unit um, with the uh, the necessary component of the engineers. So to augment civil government means that, okay, now you have additional, in order to kind of shore up your mission, because now there's sin, uh, now you have to you have the power of coercion. You have the power to you have the power of the sword. Uh, contrary to what other people have said, I never said that civil government has the power of the sword prior to the fall. I said there's a rulemaking authority to resolve collective action, so I won't go back into that again. But then there is the introduction of the sword, as in "I'll kill you if you don't follow what I say," um, or anyway, you know. But that—that's the—that's the idea, right? It's a symbol of civil authority, meaning coercion. Post fall, and but what's the purpose of this? The purpose is to act upon society to to continue to try to keep the society to to. Um, maintain its its original purpose so there's no like there's no introduction of new ends or or uh, there's no new telos to civil society it's still the same thing it's earthly and heavenly good but now you have this injection of sin you need an additional uh, power namely coercive power to order things rightly to, so that civil society can continue to meet its meet its end so the principle of civil society remains the same the ends of civil society remain the same, but the means to ensure that that the uh, that the, the society meets its ends or is at least aimed at the ends is now an additional power, namely um, coercive power, okay, or the power of the sword. If you want to call it that, that's the argument there. I haven't seen anyone deal with that directly. Um, like a lot of things people don't people don't usually deal with my arguments <laughs> i know that i i like a broken record on that there have been people who have tried to deal with arguments but a lot of it is just a misunderstanding of what i'm claiming and not because i think sometimes i mean I, yeah sometimes it can be i guess my fault um I, yeah but other times or most of the time, I just don't think it is. I think it's just it's a it's a dense book. And if you don't take in mind the other parts of it when you understand when you read later pages, you're going to start misunderstanding. It's it's a it's a political it's a system of political thought, which means, you know, there can be incoherence in here, can be meaning you could find it, that'd be that would be a good legitimate criticism of me but um it, it means that everything is supposed to hang together so if i say one thing in a previous chapter it's supposed to cohere with what i say and perhaps yeah cohere with what i say in a later chapter and it should somehow or perhaps build from it but anyway no, enough of that um uh, yeah. All right. So that's that's how I talked talk about the fall. So that it was um, that nations are not a result of sin in themselves, and then the second would be the augmentation of institutions to explain now civil government. And oh, I should also say that with the augmentation, this then precludes kind of the Van Drunen Horton Hart type two king uh, radical or reform what, or modern two kings. Is what I call it. That, that theology, um, because they assume that it was introduced post fall. And so, in that sense, it's kind of, it um, it's, it's, has more precise, prescribed roles or limitations based upon that. Whereas I'm saying, no, originally it was intended to orient the civil society to meet the, the end of civil society, which is directly the earthly good, but then also the highest good as well which means that civil government acting upon civil society can still uh, act and ought to act in my, uh, with the eternal good in mind. Therefore, this could be all sorts of things from establishing a church to protecting the church to encouraging worship to, I don't know, all sorts of things. And we'll get to that as I review the rest of the book. Um, all right, state of grace. Uh, now, the state of grace, but so what, what about grace, though? Right, so again, there's like different states of man. There's the state of integrity, state of sin, and then there's a the state of grace. All along the way, you have the potential for things changing, right? So for state of grace, how does grace change man? There is, of course, a change um, in man as a result of grace. And so the, here's where I talk about sanctification. Sanctification... Uh, of course, I rely heavily on the, the principle that not, uh, that grace does not destroy nature, but it, it, it restores nature. One might say it renews nature. Uh, so I cite Bavink. Regeneration restores to us what we, in keeping with the design of our being, should have but lost as a result of sin. In principle, it restores us to the likeness and image of God. So when you think of what what regeneration does, regeneration restores to what we were. I mean, there's more to it than that. But that means what we lost is what we recover. Okay, so in sanctification, moving to sanctification, um, sanctification is both progressive and definitive. This is kind of a, yeah, so definitive sanctification means that it's restored to us the original faculties that we already had. So we're not perfect. We still need to progress in our actual acts, you know, what we do. But with regard to the the powers, the gifts, the faculties, we have those returned to us. What's the, percent, the principal thing returned to us? Well, it's the principal part of the moral image or image of God, which is knowledge of God, worship of God, um, eternal, the orientation towards the highest good to God and eternal life. Um, So Boving says, hence, though these are new qualities that regeneration implants in a person, they are nevertheless no other than those that belong to human nature, just as health is a normal state of the body. They are habits, dispositions, or inclinations that were originally included in the image of God and agreed with the law of God. Okay, so restored. All right, so what does this mean? Well, if there is continuity between the prelapsarian or the state of integrity and the state of sin... Um, then grace does not actually eradicate those it, with regard to what's natural. It doesn't actually eradicate anything that's natural. It would correct it, It would renew it. Um, it would essentially it would make things better, right? Just like in, in it would, uh, in a way sanctify nations, but it wouldn't utterly obliterate the foundation of nations. It wouldn't, uh, it, it doesn't, in other words, grace doesn't, like if we are by nature called or by nature, drawn to arrange ourselves in certain ways as created beings, when grace is introduced into that element, it doesn't eradicate that. It doesn't eliminate or destroy those principles of our being, those natural principles that lead us to that. That's the idea behind grace um, in relation to nature. Now, more than that, this means that if, so just think take, take their our original state of integrity when we're commanded to exercise dominion okay if we are commanded by god to exercise dominion that presupposes we have a set of powers to accomplish that and that those have those have the the, the telos of those powers is dominion okay so if we are restored all those then we have the power of, of exercising dominion that has to be part of what's restored to us. I mean, this just logically has to be the case. So when Van Drun and others want to say that the Dominion mandate is in a sense rescinded, or in a sense like severely modified, they 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 then they have a that impacts how they view sanctification and a de- definitive sanctification. In fact, it should lead. I think naturally, it has to lead to a kind of antinomianism in which. We don't receive an actual inherent sort of restoration. I know people are afraid of inherent righteousness because they think it's Roman Catholic, but everyone affirmed that there was some degree of inherent righteousness in salvation. Okay, this is you see didn't see it in bovink or um, well bovink kind of you see it in Turretin and and, and uh, Calvin and you see it all the, and everyone everyone kind of said that. the The issue was that inherent righteousness is not the ground of your justification. Okay, so. That's the difference. So justification is the ground of it is still, uh, you know, um, is still the uh, imputation. But nevertheless, it involves an inherent righteousness with regard to sanctification. And um, so, yeah. Uh. Right, so the dominion mandate then is, remains, um, it is in a sense restored to us and that means when we like as we work out our salvation with regard to sanctification exercising those gifts that are oriented towards dominion is kind of is part of that and we each do that in our own way you know so some of us are called to do more than others given what we have or other skills we have in uh, in, in, in providence so don't don't feel like you're just a a lowly i don't know um just uh in the eyes of the world not very important uh, you can still meet this uh, you can still meet this um this calling just like if you're given if you're given um, if you're giving uh uh two it two talents you can you can generate four and a five you can generate ten so Um, All right. Uh, So then I I kind of then go after Van Drunen. Van Drunen's pretty much ignored me, so (laughs) I'll I'll just ignore him right there. Uh, And uh, yeah, so then I go in to say, well, okay, if grace restores, renews nature, then it doesn't eradicate natural relations. That means you still, if you still ought to, when, when you become a Christian, you don't, a mother doesn't now say, I ought to Love everyone equal. All their kids equally. A father doesn't say, "I ought to love other women just as much as my wife." <laughs> um, he doesn't say uh, a family doesn't doesn't destroy itself in order to help some other one. You don't ship your kid. You don't you don't uh, 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 sell your children into slavery in order to help some other um, some other kids or other people. Right? Your natural relations, your natural inclinations are still operative still good still right and ought to be exercised and recognized now why is that i think this is what people miss they think they tend to think that i that i think these are duties that are just come out of nowhere the reason why we have like you have to understand that the the natural law like our set of principles the principles of our being our, our duties however you want to describe it those are for our good if we don't conform to those, it's not for our good. So if if within our natural being, it is good to have, it's good to, uh, if I say that we ought to love our children over other children, we ought to love our nation, our family, all these other, over other nations. The reason why I say that is because it's it's good. It's, it's not only, like the reason why, I should say, the reason why it's a duty is that It's good and the reason and um, is because it is good and it's it's not simply good it's not good simply because it's our duty is what I'm saying okay it's not as if the fact that it's a like a bear that that it's a bare command and it's good simply because God commanded it that's not what I'm saying the reason why these things are duties the reason is that they are for our good, and without it, we don't actually do good. So it's actually it is good, whether in a state of grace or not in a state of grace, to prefer your children over other children, because it 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 places a range of responsibility. So that person loves their children a lot. You love your children a lot. That's better than both than those parents loving all children equally. It's best that it's best for everyone's good, not just your children's, not just for your own. It's good for everyone else that each person would prefer their own. And if everyone preferred their own, there'd be more good than if everyone had no preference at all. So that's the claim. It's not me just giving a bare kind of claim out there that you you ought to love your nation more than others just because, well, that's just what you're supposed to do. No. You prefer your nation over other nations and other people prefer their no, na- their nation over your nation. And in doing that, it's good for everyone involved. You work to generate money for your family so that for your family's good principally, right? And you would expect another person to work not to give your family money, but to give their family money. And if everyone did that, that would be better than if we just kind of spread the money around. Everyone has their, they have a delimited responsibility, a limited set of love or objects of love, and that's better for everyone. That's the argument. It's weird how like people have called that Thomistic, which I mean, there is, it can be Thomistic, but it's also just, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what else to call it. You say, what's the, what's the nom, non, the non Thomistic is that. It's not about actually what results in good at all anyway on, I'll just go. but that's that's the argument. So when when grace comes in, grace doesn't change the fact because it doesn't it doesn't change our the fundamental constitution of our nature as created beings as what it means to be the sort of human animal that requires these these special uh, uh, loves, these hierarchy of loves. Grace does not change that right So grace does not change the fact that you should love your kids over more than other people now people like to throw in this term like relativize what relativizes those relations but that just well relative to what what's the principle when do I like okay I, I have to relativize my preference for my own children okay well okay but you so I, I am to still pre- prefer them but I not as much it, it's it sounds like it's a way to weaken the responsibility, and it's it's. But even even apart from like whatever the intention is or its effect, what's what in the end it doesn't actually answer the principle. What does it mean then to, to relativize? Does it mean some people want to say, "Oh, relativize means well, you should love everyone." Okay, yeah, you should prefer the some, but you should love everyone. Yeah, but that's just natural. Like when the the good the parable of a good Samaritan is not introducing a new command into the universe. That's just Christ um, showing what was always true from the very beginning. Of course you ought to help a, a fellow human being even if they're kind of outside your in-group, they're in your out-group. Of course you should do that, okay? That doesn't mean you bring that person in your house and then um, give that person the your child's seat at the table and have your child then go, you know, fend for himself out in the woods, Okay, but you still should help that person out. Your principal concern should remain towards your in-group or there's the sum, while each person in the whole world is a potential object of, is an object of your benevolence, your well-wishing, and a potential object of your beneficence, meaning the, the doing well for someone. Okay, but that doesn't mean loves are equal. So the point is all that is natural. So Christ was not issuing new command; it was natural from the beginning. So again, the the relativizing thing—it it it sounds nice, but it doesn't actually answer the question. It just pushes the question down the road. Okay, so I have to love them less. I have to love other people as well. Like, what's what's the principle in the end? But but um, which. Well, we'll just leave it at that. Um, all right, uh, that's then. In the end, I, I I go into a bit of ecclesiology. I don't think I, I don't really want to go into this very much. Um, I said, yeah. Well, I mean, civil and, and ecclesiastical administrations. Uh, this would be a distinction between the kind of the two, the the um, the two associations: so civil and ecclesiastical. That one of the points was that. They're not like the same people can be in both. So if you have like, let's say, you know, and I, this will probably never happen, but you have a national church and, and and so everyone who's in the national church is also in the, is, is under the civil administration as well. So it's the same people that is like the objects of those administrations are the same exact people. You'd still have separate administrations, right? So if you like, just take like the ideal of the Church of England, where everyone's in the Church of England, but there's still recognized separation between church uh, and state. And the, the main point was was to point was to emphasize that each association has its unique power, each each um, or assembly, each kind of uh, administration. Has its own power, uh, has its own like end. So the end, like uh, the end of civ- of the of the church, is eternal life. The end of the civil administration is is firstly um, things of this world or earthly life, though it can also add, do command those in reference to something higher or ought to. Um, that was the point of that. I think understanding. Now that I think about it, understanding that distinction would probably have helped. Some people not like understand, underst- they, it would help them understand what I mean by perhaps having like a church establishment or the, the relationship of church and state in um, the rest of the book. But whatever. Uh, the, the last, let's see, I think this is the last one. Yeah, the last one was Dominion and the Divine Image. No one people, no one really questioned that, so I'll leave it at that. Um, all right, well that that is chapter two. I, I may not have answered all your objections to chapter two or your your questions about it. Um, thing just pops in my mind would be that like just I, it's another one of those chapters where I quote a lot of people, and if you're gonna take issue with something I say in there, I I mean. That that's fine. I'm not, of course, I'm not going to challenge. I'm not going to say you can't take issue with what I'm saying. But don't act as if the thing. Some of the things I'm saying here are, you know, out, out of the blue. Like what one person has said that like basically I violate the Westminster Confession in this regard, which is funny because you look down the list and the people I'm quoting. Again, I mentioned before Calvin, Vermily, Edwards. Hodge, Bavink, Turretin, Elthusius. Um, Second Helvetic Confession. Uh, I think at one point I, I do the Senate of, I quote the Senate of Dort or Cans of Dort, um, Willard, of course, and just go down the line of these guys. So, our is in there. You just go down the line, you see all these people I cite, and that doesn't mean I'm right. It just means that, like, if you're a fellow Reformed brother, I would just say, you know, be it's just strikes me as very dishonest that you would like kind of freak out about something and say it's outside the reform tradition when I'm literally citing some of the most important names in that tradition in support for my claim. This will be true later too. I think, I think De young made some um, kind of claims against me that like he failed to recognize that I'm citing people in support for it. But, um, all right, well, we'll leave it at that and we'll stop. We'll stop there. Um, Thanks for listening, and I'll try to get another one out uh, for the next chapter. I guess everyone's waiting. Everyone's waiting for that next chapter, that chapter on loving your nation, ethnicity, and all that good stuff, and hearing what I have to say there. So, All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.